Hello and welcome to the Lancet audio summary for the issue dated July the 29th to August the 4th. I'm Richard Lane. There's a real variety of topics in this week's issue. We give coverage to the appalling conflict in the Middle East. There's a fascinating ethics article proposing a new model to increase the number of kidney donations from live donors. And research suggesting that men are at an increased risk of recurrent venous thromboembolism compared with women. But first, our lead editorial this week has the following headline. Premature birth, crisis and opportunity. Here's our North American senior editor, Faith McClellan, to explain more. Richard, it's very interesting. Although a lot of health problems, public health issues, have gotten better over the past decade, there's one in America that's actually gotten worse, and that is preterm birth, unbelievably enough. It turns out that, according to a recent Institute of Medicine report, babies who are born before 37 weeks of gestation the rate of those preterm births has actually increased in the past 20 years from 9.4% to 12.5% of all births in America now. Now, that is a really a high number on its face, but when you start to look at it broken down by racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic group, those numbers become even worse. That's the crisis we're talking about today. Can you elaborate on the disparities in the ethnic groups? It turns out that African-American women have a preterm birth rate of 17.8%, and this is opposed to a rate of 11.5% for white women. There are also higher numbers for uh, Hispanic women and for American Indians and Native Alaskans. Now, the other part of this crisis that I'd like to highlight is the astonishing economic cost of preterm birth. For example, in the year 2005 alone, preterm birth was estimated to cost the United States $26.2 billion. That came out to $51,600 for each infant born early. And further, we know that that is the cost of the initial hospitalization of babies born early, but we don't know very much about the costs that are incurred after that although given the array of developmental disabilities that go with preterm birth, we are sure that those costs must be much higher, even than these astonishing figures. And what are the underlying causes, do you think, of these startling statistics? Well, it's easy to speculate that amongst women of a uh, lower socioeconomic class, part of the problem is lack of access to prenatal care. Ironically, though, another group that has a high incidence of preterm birth are women who have had assistive, assistive reproductive technologies. These are women that we would presume are in a higher socioeconomic status than these other women. So we have a kind of uh, two-sided problem here on the socioeconomic front. But besides that, a lot of other environmental and genetic factors have been thought to be the cause of preterm birth, exposure to air pollutants, alcohol and other substance abuses, and then, of course, a whole array of genetic susceptibilities and genetic gene-environment interactions. So there's the crisis. Where's the opportunity? Ironically, a crisis like this that has so many disparate parts that involves social, economic, genetic factors, and so forth, actually presents quite a number of opportunities for research. This is one area in which I think the underfunding of clinical research, particularly multidisciplinary clinical research, which is required to solve this problem, 
this, the weakness of that underfunding is really showing in this problem. So we have opportunities now to define better exactly what is preterm birth. How do you predict it and how do you prevent it? Right now, the only intervention is about delaying labor. And what we need, obviously, instead of treatment at that point, is prediction of who is at risk for preterm birth and how that preterm birth can be prevented. Obviously, solving that problem would have an enormous impact on the economic cost to society and to the parents and families involved in this crisis. And whose responsibility is it now in the United States to pick up the ball here and uh, take action? I believe it's a multidisciplinary, multi-institute responsibility. This ought to be a priority for research across the board in various government federally funded institutes and in private research funding. It's obviously a, a problem that cuts across the whole spectrum of American life, and it involves not only adults, working adults, women and parents, but also the children who are suffering from the effects of preterm birth. So we've really got to grab the bull by the horns here and put some money into this problem so we can decrease the cost both to society and personally and give these kids a chance for a real productive life. Faith McClellan. The crisis in the Middle East is dominating media headlines at the moment. In World Report this week, we draw attention to the humanitarian crisis in the Gaza Strip, where an estimated 80% of people are living in poverty. Linked to this is one of our editorials which comments that, whilst it is understandable and inevitable that the world's attention is focused on Israel and Lebanon, we should not forget the plight of Palestinians suffering in Gaza. In the Department of Ethics this week, Dr. Robert Montgomery from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in the U.S. proposes a new model for kidney donation. The new proposal is a model called domino-paired donation. This process occurs when a living donor's kidney is donated to a recipient whose preferred donor cannot be matched to their own. This frees up the donation of the other donor who can then offer the kidney to the next person on the waiting list, therefore creating this domino effect. Dr. Montgomery comments that if domino pair donation had been used in the United States since the onset of living kidney transplantation, then the number of transplants would have doubled compared to those that have been achieved until now. This is also the topic of an accompanying comment contrasting the US and UK transplant systems. And finally, we publish a research article which is suggesting that men could be at an increased risk of venous thromboembolism than women. Earlier, I spoke to one of the study authors, Dr. Simon McRae, from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Adelaide, Australia, who explains more. We're really looking to try and uh, stratify individual risk of, of recurrent thrombosis uh, in the, certainly in the group of patients with sort of unprovoked events or events that uh, occur without a clear cause. The risk of recurrence in these patients, if they're treated with anticoagulant therapy for six months and then it stops, is up to uh, 10% in the first year and then up to a quarter to a third of patients over the next sort of five to eight years. Obviously, these events can be potentially fatal and while they can be prevented with uh, anticoagulant therapy, there is also currently available uh, anticoagulant which I suppose warfarin is the most commonly used, carries with it a risk of uh, bleeding which itself can be fatal. So we're really looking for ways to try and select patients who would benefit most from uh, either prolonged anticoagulation 
or perhaps more aggressive prophylaxis at times of increased risk. There have been two previous cohort studies performed which suggested that uh, patient sex may be associated with an increased or may define risk of recurrent thrombosis with males being potentially a higher risk of thrombosis. And in terms of the methodology you used, this is a review of published data and a meta-analysis. That's right. We, uh, we really were looking at studies that involve patients with objectively diagnosed venous thrombosis, so we were certainly happy diagnosis in the first place that were treated for at least a month with uh, oral anticoagulant therapy and then that were sort of systematically followed forward so that we were happy that most of the recurrent events would have been accounted for and also studies that we could get the data on the recurrence rate by gender. So it ended up being um, some 15 studies that enrolled um, almost over um, just over 5,000 patients of which about 50% were male and 50% female. It appeared that there was a statistically significant increase in recurrence in males and uh, with an increase of approximately 50% over that of females. And you point out in your paper that this is a retrospective analysis of data from other studies and obviously what we always need are prospective studies, ideally randomised studies. Is it too soon for clinicians to change practice based on these results? I think all meta-analysis and just by design are obviously, as we said, retrospective analyses and uh, really post-hoc analysis by definition. I think this our finding was strongly suggestive, but I think it really needs to be backed up by uh, sort of prospective studies, particularly studies that record individual patient data, which may which we didn't have in this analysis, but may help us to explain why there is this difference in risk. Also, I, would, I think the, the magnitude of increase in risk by itself probably doesn't justify making a decision on length of anticoagulant treatment by gender alone, but it should be a factor that's uh, considered with, with other factors such as bleeding risk. So really being used as part of a, a decision model, uh, which uh, I think uh, needs to be looked at prospectively. Do you actually have any thoughts yourself as to why the result came out the way it did with the 50% increase among men? I think that's the most interesting question and I think we would all feel happy with the results if we had a clear exit. We looked for a number of variables and we weren't clearly able to identify why there was this increased risk in males. We didn't have access to things like you know, body mass, the risk of developing malignancy uh, subsequently after the initial diagnosis and the presence or absence of, sort of uh, previously defined thrombophilic conditions uh, according to gender. So I think it may be the prospective studies looking at those things may be able to better define why there was this difference in risk that we saw. Uh, but at the moment, we haven't reached a firm conclusion as to why it was. That was Dr. Simon McRae finishing this week's audio summary. Thanks for listening and see you next week.